I'm sure all of you have had the uncomfortable opportunity of seeing a news story with a reporter standing out in front of a church building or on the campus of some Christian ministry reporting that the leader or multiple leaders have been involved in some kind of scandal. They've embezzled money. They've been involved in extramarital affairs or whatever the case may be. And it just, it just hits you in the gut when you see that. When it happens to a business or something, that's bad enough. But we've all seen those cases where a ministry is brought into the spotlight, not for good things, <clears throat> but because of sin taking place. We've all known of Christian leaders who we've perhaps respected and looked up to, who we heard at some point were perhaps not what we thought they were. And it's easy for us to walk away from seeing something like that, shaking our head in disgust and looking down our nose at that person and just being uh, really annoyed with how they've handled things. And I think we fall short sometimes of pausing to look in the mirror and realize that every one of us is capable of doing the same thing and worse. You and I may not have a big ministry on television or anything like that that's in the spotlight that we could wreck and cause national or international news, but you and I, every day of our lives, are bearing testimony for the God of heaven. How much does that impact our decisions every day? How much does that affect our business transactions and negotiations? How much does that affect our family relationships, our relationships with coworkers and neighbors? How much does that affect our desires and our pursuits? This morning, we come to the last half of 2 Kings chapter 5, and we see, unfortunately, a man who ruined his testimony, and we don't know how this unfolded because it doesn't give us all the details after this, but I'm pretty sure brought some shame onto the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Last week, in the first half of 2 Kings 5, we saw the bold faith of a young servant girl who, even though she was a captive in a foreign land, she'd been taken captive in, in Israel and taken to Syria to serve as a, as a slave, as a servant girl. Even though she was a captive in a, in a pagan land, she still had the bold faith to speak up and point her master to God. And because she did that, we saw that her master Naaman was cured of his leprosy and he also turned his heart to the Lord, as we'll see a little bit more today. But sadly, this, this chapter closes with another servant who is the exact opposite of that young girl. And as we look at these verses this morning for a few minutes, I want us just to ask ourselves, which, which one are we? Which one do we really see ourselves as and bring ourselves honestly before the Lord this morning? We pick up from where we left off last week. We finished in verse 14. So let's start with 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15. And it says this, And Naaman returned to the man of God, that's Elisha. Now he's, he's just been in the river, he's dipped seven times, he's been cured of his leprosy. So now he returns to the man of God, he and all his company, all the people he brought with him, and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. 
Verse 16, but Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Now, earlier we saw that Naaman had rolled into town with his chariots and horses and $4 million worth of gold and silver and uh, changes of fancy clothes. And he was thinking that his money and his position, his prominence, would be able to impress people and buy his healing. But he's been changed now. He's just confessed here that there's no God besides the God of Israel. And so now his heart has changed and he genuinely wants to give a gift out of the, the thankfulness of his heart for what God has done for him. But there's a danger here. And you might think, well, what, what would be wrong with Elisha taking that? Well, ordinarily, there wouldn't be anything wrong. The Bible tells us, encourages us to support the work of the Lord. But the danger is receiving a gift from someone at the moment that they're saved may make them think that their gift has contributed somehow to their salvation. You know, Naaman was used to being treated well because of his position and his wealth. And so he and everybody back in Syria needed to know as he went back home and began to bear testimony to the God of Israel, he and all of them needed to know that he wasn't healed because of who he was. He was healed because of who God is. Naaman's physical healing was obvious to us last week, but his spiritual healing is obvious to us in today's verses. He comes from a pagan country where they worship false gods, but now he clearly has his heart set on worshiping the God of Israel, and he wants to do it in the right way. Can I just put this in modern terms? He's a brand new believer. He's just been saved. He's a brand new Christian, if we can put it in those terms. Now look at verse 17, what he says to Elisha. He said, then, then if not, if you're, if you're not going to take these gifts, then Please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, or as much soil as two mules can carry. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to any other gods but to the Lord. Now, this is an odd thing for us to read. We don't know what's going on. Is he going home to plant a garden? What does he need dirt for? Well, when a, when a person gives their life to the Lord and they're truly saved, there will be things that they used to do that they just don't want to do anymore. Some things no one will have to tell them. They'll just fall away. They'll just immediately not want to do some of those things. And now Naaman has said, I'm not worshiping those idols anymore. I'm only worshiping the God of Israel. And it seems that what he's asking here, to me, it's a really beautiful, innocent request coming from a new believer. Everybody in that day knew that God's people were to worship him in Jerusalem at the temple. We saw that back in 1 Kings 8 when the temple was dedicated by Solomon. Even all up through the New Testament, that was still known when Jesus talked to the woman at the well. She said, you know, we know that you Jews worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, well, you know, a time is coming when you'll neither worship here on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but you'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so it was very clear to everyone that the place to worship the God of Israel was in Israel. And so Naaman is thinking, if I'm going to worship this God back in my homeland of Syria, I can't worship him on pagan soil. Now this goes a lot deeper than we have time to get into this morning. There were some things tied to the earth in their minds with their gods. 
Uh, and so I believe some of that is coming into play as well. But he says, you know, can I at least take some dirt from Israel back with me and make a place where I can go and stand on that dirt from Israel to worship the God of Israel? He doesn't understand how all this works yet. But I really think this shows the genuineness of his heart. I think it's a really beautiful, innocent request that he's thinking that far ahead. Verse 18, he says, Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, now his master is the king of Syria, when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my arm, and I bow myself in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this matter. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, not only does Naaman now have to return to his old land, he has to return to his old job. You ever, uh, when you got saved, have to return to the old job? Surrounded by the old people who don't care anything about the Lord, boy, it's a tough environment for a lot of people. This is what Naaman is facing, and again, he's thinking ahead. He's trying to figure out how to navigate all of this. And one of his responsibilities was to escort the king into the temple, and the king would uh, sort of lean on his arm, and in order for the king to bow down, Naaman would have to bow down a little bit and let the king bow down and then help him back up. And he's conflicted about doing this now. You can see the Holy Spirit working on his conscience already. And he's already said, I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to worship false gods anymore. But his conscience, is, his conscience is sensitive now to going into that old temple. Again, I don't think he really knows what to say at this point. He's sort of maybe pre-confessing something to Elisha saying, I know I'm going to have to do this. Maybe I'm not going to do it forever, but I got to go back and do this. What do I do? I, you know, I'm not worshiping their gods. I'm not going to bow down to them, but what, what do I do? And would you please forgive me in this matter? Again, I think it's a, a beautiful thing. He's asking for forgiveness in advance. And I find um, Elisha's response very interesting in verse 19a. Elisha said to him, go in peace. Now, Elisha was a man of stout words. We've seen that already. I mean, he had no um, bashfulness at all speaking the truth of God. When he was consulted by, um, who was it? The, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, we saw a few weeks ago. And they came to him for help. He, he said to them, you know, if Jehoshaphat, who's a godly man, wasn't with you, I wouldn't even pay attention to you. I wouldn't even give you the time of day. So this is a man who's not afraid to say what needs to be said. And he could have taken this moment to really uh, sort of strip Naaman to pieces and go, are you crazy? You're a believer now. You can't go into one of those temples. What's wrong with you? He doesn't do that. He simply says to him, go in peace. Now, Elisha isn't saying, it's fine. It's fine. Keep going into the temple, no problem. He's not saying that. But nor is he rebuking Naaman at this point either. He doesn't have to rebuke Naaman because Naaman already knows it's not the place a worshiper of God should be. His conscience is already troubled about this. But I can assure you, if Naaman continues to walk with God, continues to listen to his leading, he'll get to the point where he won't go to that temple anymore no matter what it costs him. This is the process of growing in our faith as we learn. 
It's called the process of sanctification. And listen, we have to be patient with other people, especially new believers. Don't give new believers a list of rules, because guess what? Your rules are probably wrong, like many of mine have been over the years. I look back and go, what were you thinking? Don't give them a list of rules. Don't condemn them for every little thing they do. Don't pull them aside and go, I can't believe you wore this to church today. What's wrong with you? No, no, no. Yes, there's, there's a time. There's a time and a place for us to directly, lovingly address things with other people. Make no mistake. But I think as the church, I don't mean life point, I mean the church as a whole, boy, I think the church has blown it in this area. We have a man here who, one of our elders, who um, said years ago, he, uh, well, he still looks pretty rough, but he, uh, he, no, it's not, he doesn't, I'm just kidding. But he was into all kinds of stuff years ago, and you know, the first Sunday he came here, he was an intimidating looking dude. Leather jacket and, you know, long goatee and everything. I was like, man, hey. But he told me something that just grieved my heart. He said, this is the first church my wife and I have come to where people haven't turned their back on me. He said, when I walked in, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. Those were his words. That's disgusting. That's heartbreaking. Shame on God's people for treating other people that way. And he's turned out to be one of the most precious jewels this church could ever have. A man of great faith and meekness. And they all missed out on that, see? Because they were so hung up on their list of religious rules that you have to, you have to come up to our bar before we'll even talk to you. It's nonsense. Jesus intentionally hung out with prostitutes and thieves and criminals of every imaginable kind. The people he had the harshest words for were the church people so to speak, the Pharisees, the religious people. We need to be easy on new believers. We don't need to give them our list of rules. Here's what we need to give them. We need to give them the word of God. We need to teach them how to study the word of God and let the Holy Spirit do his work in them. Can I surprise you with something? You're not the Holy Spirit. And neither am I. I've played that part a few times in the past and shame on me. The Holy Spirit knows how to do his job in the life of a believer. If we'll just back up just a little bit and show some grace and show some patience and keep pointing those people to the word of God, the word of God will transform their life. Something will, will change immediately, like I said, but listen, other things will take time. Every one of you, whether you've been saved five years or 55 years, you could stand up here this morning and say, Boy, here's about 18 things that I'm still working on, and God's still working on me. That's how it goes. Well, we see Naaman now, transformed by, by God's grace. But sadly, the story doesn't end there. It would be wonderful if the chapter just concluded there. But now we come to the second part of verse 19. Verse 19b and 20 says this, But when Naaman had departed from Elisha a short distance, Gehazi, 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 however you pronounce that name, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian. Do you hear? Do you hear that? Naaman this Syrian. He spared him in not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Oh boy. 
What we see happening in the heart and mind of Gehazi right here should serve as a strong warning for all of us. It's a reminder, folks, of how close someone can live to the truth but still be living a lie. It's a reminder of how we can be involved in all kinds of religious activity but not be genuine at all. Gehazi had spent years with Elisha. We've already seen him back in the previous chapter. He's witnessed all the miracles. He's heard the word of God preached with power, and yet his heart remains unchanged. You know what this is a reminder of? It reminds me of all the things we've seen in our journey through the Bible so far in the Old Testament. Seeing miracles does not transform a sinner's heart. Jesus said, uh, the people said to Jesus, hey, show us a sign and we'll believe. Jesus said, no, no, I'm not going to. Because even if someone were raised from the dead, you wouldn't believe. We've got to be careful. I, I'm, I need to move on, but I just would caution all of us to, to not be caught up in something that I've seen happening last you know, eight or ten years, this trend of praying that God would... I want to be really careful how I say this, because I don't want to limit us on anything that we pray for. But I've just seen this, this trend of... People saying, God, we want to see something great from you. We want to see a sign. We want to see your power. Listen, folks. Why? Yes, we want to see God move. We pray that all the time here. We want to see God move in the hearts of the lost and bring them to salvation. We want to see God moving in our midst and transforming us day by day. But God's given us his word. Are you done with that already? You need something more? Just be careful. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's, it's a very slippery slope that we become dissatisfied with having the gift of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And we say, God, I want to see more. Why? Because you don't believe in him enough right now? We can talk more about that later because there are times I think we need to pray big, crazy, bold prayers. But just, just be careful. I've seen people get really, really off track in that we can see miracles and it won't transform our heart. We can spend all our time so close to God, involved in ministry, coming to church every Sunday, giving our money, serving here and there, and yet we can still have an unregenerate heart. It's a danger. Gehazi fits, those, fits the description of those people of whom God said, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Far from me. Especially growing up in a place like Greenville, South Carolina, which is so flooded with Christianity. It's easy to grow up and just learn the lingo. And as a child, even, you know all the religious things to say. You got your parents fooled, you got your pastor fooled. You worship with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Well, this guy can't believe Elisha turned down Naaman's offer to get all that money. So he decides he's going to go get it for himself. And it's interesting to me, just a small thing, he uses the same phrase that Elisha had used. He had just heard Elisha say, as surely as the Lord lives, I will accept nothing from you. And so he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something for him. Well, he got the first half right, but he didn't get the second half right. See, it's another one of those things where we can learn the Christian lingo. We know all the right things to say. And people might look at you and go, wow, he's so close to the Lord. She's so close to the Lord. And meanwhile, it's nothing more than just empty routine. 
Gehazi sounded really spiritual in the first part of that statement. As surely as the Lord lives. Oh, listen. Oh, yes. But his real motives were exposed in the second part of that statement. I'll go and take something from him. How many ministers of the gospel have that same desire today? I'll go and take something from them. I've seen it so much, I just can hardly stand to see it anymore. They say, send us your money and you'll be healed. Sow a $1,000 seed into this ministry and God will give you tenfold back. Really? So many people get taken in on things that fall under that category, but then they get soured by it and it ruins the testimony of God. Again, it ruins it. And Gehazi could... You know, he's about to get into something here that could very easily destroy Elisha's good testimony. First, he thought up this selfish plan, and now he actually puts it into action. That's the way it works with all of us. It just starts with a thought. Ah, Just a little thought. Maybe I'll play with that thought for a while. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Before we know it, we're walking it out. Someone once said this. I think it might be worth reading. Sow a thought, and you reap an action. Sow an action, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. Now I can tell you Gehazi is pretty far down that road already. Verse 21. So he pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? I love the question that Naaman asked him. Is all well? In other words, in our language, is everything all right? Is everything all right, Gehazi? You know, the Bible says for every temptation we face, God will always provide a way of escape. And I can't help but thinking that this was Gehazi's opportunity to be convicted and say, you know what? As a matter of fact, everything's not all right. What am I doing here? I'm about to commit a terrible sin. I think that was perhaps his opportunity. It's just such a, it's a, it's an innocent question, something that everyone would ask. But in this situation, it just seems to pierce right through what he's about to do. Is everything all right? But instead, he starts trying to back up his sinful plan with one lie after another. And this is always how it unfolds. Verse 22. And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, well, no, he didn't. Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from Mount Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Well, that whole thing was a lie. But Naaman didn't know that. His, his transformed heart has now become so generous that he's eager to give to the Lord. And so verse 23, and Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of Gehazi. We can pick up from this verse that Gehazi is playing this, heart, this part really well. Naaman says to him, no, don't, don't just take one. Here, take two. And Gehazi must have said something like, oh, no, I couldn't. No. Because it says Naaman had to urge him no, no, serious, take two. Gehazi says, well, all right, if you insist. He acts all humble. Naaman urges him to take this out of the goodness of his heart. Gehazi ends up taking it, and now he heads back home with 
two bags of silver, two sets of clothes, and two servants to help him carry it all. Verse 24, when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let them go and they departed. So he gets to some point, we don't know exactly where, but prior to getting to the place where he and Elisha live, there's, there's apparently a, a hill that Elisha from the house wouldn't be able to see past. And he stops on the other side of that, tells the servants, hey, thanks a lot. Give my best to Naaman. Tell him thanks again. It's really going to bless the lives of these two young men who don't exist. Thank you so much for helping me. I'll, I've got it from here. He sends them on the way because he doesn't want Elisha to see this. And somehow he sneaks around, carries all this stuff in, and he hides it away. It's interesting how sin always gets you to cover up what you've done, isn't it? Sin never says, hey, ask if you can go share this on the platform next Sunday. Sin always gets you to turn the lights out, to hide things, to cover things up. And look how one lie leads to another, and they just become more and more ridiculous. Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master. You think he was like, (laughs) you know, when you've lied, you're very uncomfortable, very fidgety. He went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, where'd you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. How absurd. Elisha already knows he went somewhere. That's why he asked him where he went. Gehazi could have at least said, uh, I went over to visit Frank and Eileen. You know the new neighbors, right? You've met Frank and Eileen. I went to spend some time with them. Nothing. No, he just says, I didn't go anywhere. See what sin does to you? Makes a fool out of you. It's like your little child whose face is covered with chocolate. And you say, did you get into the dessert? No, I didn't eat anything. I think this is actually a very gracious question that Elisha asks Gehazi. We'll see in a second. Elisha already knows everything that's happened. God's already told him. He knows everything. But instead of just pouncing on Gehazi and condemning him, he graciously gives him an opportunity to confess. By the way, that's a great leadership posture to take with your children, with your staff, with whoever. Hey, so tell me, what's going on? Give them an opportunity. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid themselves. God could have struck them dead with lightning right then in their hiding place. Instead, remember the first question he asked them? Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. Are you kidding me? Adam didn't know where he was. God wanted Adam to wake up and go, where am I? What in the world am I doing? It was a gracious question. Gehazi actually thinks he can lie to the prophet of God and get away with it. It's astounding to me after all he's seen Elisha do. Then sadly, he hears these convicting words in the first part of verse 26. Then Elisha said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Wow. Gehazi's heart must have been struck. Oh, he not only knows I've been somewhere, he knows all the details. God has told him, we'll see next week, Elisha, God told Elisha the very thoughts of the king in his palace. These words must have made his heart sink. But it's the same with us, isn't it? Do we really believe we're getting away with anything? Seriously. 
You know, we're, we're, we're adults, and yet we still act like that little kid with chocolate on his face. I'll just, I'll do this. God's not paying attention today. I don't have a slide for this. This just came to mind, but Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is naked and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a verse you don't see on people's refrigerators. <laughs> Might be a good place to put it, though. <laughs> Jeremiah 16, 17 says this. The Lord says, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And I could go on and on and on with verses like that, but I intentionally stop there because of this. I do not ever want the fear of being caught to become our motivation for doing right. And we so often live that way. Ooh, I was going to do that, but man, I know I'm going to get busted if I do. I was, I was going to you know, go, go to that place, but I'm pretty sure if I do, God's going to nail me for it. That's a terrible motivation to live for the Lord. It should be our love for God and our gratitude for who he is and what he's done that compels us and inspires us to live for him, not fear of being caught. Well, we read the awful conclusion to all of this because the Bible says sin does have a conclusion and it always ends horribly. The Bible says that that sin, it says specifically, stolen food tastes sweet, but in the end, it becomes a mouthful of gravel. That's quite a picture. The Bible says sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Verse 27, Elisha is speaking to Gehazi. He says, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And Gehazi went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. What a horrible conclusion to this chapter. He not only got Naaman's money, he got Naaman's leprosy as well. He got everything he wanted, but he lost it all. He lost everything. What Gehazi did is not an isolated incident in Scripture or in history. We, we see the sin of covetousness destroying the lives of people all throughout Scripture. We can picture Achan, can't we? Frantically digging a hole underneath his tent, looking over his shoulder to bury the spoils of war that he took that God said, do not take anything from this battle. But Achan saw it and he wanted it. And there he is like a dog digging a hole, burying it under his tent until God points him out. We think of Judas Iscariot saying, how much will you give me to betray him? 30 pieces of silver. What a pathetic sum of money to betray the king of kings. And yet we see him reaching out to take it. We think of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 who lied about their offering to God and God struck them dead on the spot and they were both carried out. We think of Paul writing the sad words towards the end of his life. Demas has forsaken me because he loved this present world. And just like Gehazi, all those people got what they wanted, but they ended up losing everything. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? 
What an exchange that is. It's the worst deal ever. You say, well, how do I avoid that? Because the fact is the Bible is filled with those examples of covetousness. History is filled with those examples, and none of us are immune from it either. You say, well, I've known God for 40 years. Great. Has nothing to do with this conversation. You and I are just as capable of being swept up in covetousness. And it doesn't have to be money, by the way. It can be anything that draws our heart away from God. You say, okay, well, how, how do I avoid that then? How do I avoid having a heart like Gehazi? Well, I'm going to tell you something that I've told you many times before, collectively, and many of you individually, and I know you may get tired of hearing it, but it's my only answer. You need to immerse yourself in the Word of God. Wow, that's hard work, Phil. I'm not a reader. Well, become one. You don't even have to read the Bible now. You can listen to it. That's the answer. There's no shortcut. There's no self-help books that will fix this. It's the word of God only. You let his word wash over you day after day so that that cleansing and maturing process can begin to take place. Jesus said this himself in John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You want to know how to get sanctified? Get into the word. John 8, 31, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Some of you are bound up in things. You've been a Christian for 20 years. You're still bound up in the same things. You know why? Because you never crack your Bible open at home. You expect me to do it all for you. I can't. I can't. You're going to wither and die on the vine if you leave it up to me. I can't do that for you. Don't spend your life reading books about the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Who cares about someone else's opinion or interpretation? Open it for yourself. Where do I start? Start anywhere. It doesn't matter. Everybody says, read John. Fine, read John, whatever. Just open it and start reading and say, God, open my eyes. Cleanse me of this sin. These chains that are still binding me, God, free me from this. And begin to read and read and read, and that truth will set you free. It will. It's living and powerful, and it will transform your thoughts and your attitudes and your desires and your actions. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you will come to love him, and the more you will want to live for him. That doesn't happen by pumping yourself up to be a Christian in the morning. It comes by immersing yourself in the Word of God. But I know most people won't do that. It's just too much hard work. I can't help you. I got nothing else for you. I got no tricks, nothing. It's the Word of God. You need to open it up. You need to get into it. You need to read it and let it begin to speak to you. It will transform your life. I'll challenge any one of you. And if this fails, Rex Jones will give you $1,000. <laughs> you take 30 days. You take 30 days and commit yourself to reading God's word for 30 days. And if you come back to me at the end of 30 days and say, nothing happened. Nothing changed in my life. I'll eat the Bible. 
Because I'm telling you, you cannot say that. It will not happen. God's word will not return void. It will accomplish what it was sent out to do. But we've got to get into it. We've got to pursue it. So may I close by asking you the question Naaman asked Gehazi. Is everything all right? Is everything all right? Would you have to honestly say, you know, Phil, I'm around religious things all the time, but I'm actually miles away from God. I've just been playing the game. You know, I've been, I've been pursuing other things, and I can't truly say that he is the desire of my heart. But today I want to make Jesus my highest pursuit. You can do that this morning. Just come to him. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a couple songs, and this will be over. Now's your opportunity. If that's where you are, I invite you just to come to him by faith. Confess to him. He already knows. And just say, Lord, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I want to be. Would you wash me clean? Search me, try me, know my heart, know my thoughts. Cleanse me, God, and draw me back to you. I want to, I, I want to begin today by making sure that you are my highest pursuit my greatest desire above everything else. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036 Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.